This is another episode of On the Grid by Z Prime. Love your energy. Hey, everybody. This is Z Prime On the Grid. Uh, I am your host, Dylan Lockwood. Erin Hardick, unfortunately, is out today, uh, but in her place, we have uh, Z Prime CEO Jason Rodriguez. Jason, thanks for joining. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be back here, Dylan. Happy to have you. And we also have with us a professor of electrical and computer engineering for the University of Minnesota, Dr. Masood Amin. Masood, how are you doing today? Good morning. Thank you so much, Dylan. Honored to join you and Jason, my good friend. Thank you. So, Masood, uh, what's uh, the ground situation in Minnesota like right now? It has been like the rest of the world and the rest of our nation has been a rough road, but thank goodness uh, uh, it could be much worse. The first uh, confirmed case of, of uh, coronavirus testing was on March 6. And uh, a week later, Governor Walsh put the state kind of peacetime emergency state response in order. And they worked with uh, supporting hospitals. And as you, you gentlemen may know and listeners may know, Minnesota is really great at, uh, at public health. And we have gurus of public health, including my colleague, Dr. Mike Osterholm, that you may have seen him on CNN and elsewhere at the University of Minnesota, as well as a terrific uh, company, a terrific, many terrific companies, including 3M and uh, Boston Scientific and, uh, and uh, the company that Earl Bakken founded, a famous Medtronic and many others. So it really, when you look at the journey, unfortunately we have had over 5,200 positive cases in a state that has about five and a half million residents in it. About three million live in the Twin Cities area, St. Paul and Minneapolis. And the rest are in other parts of this beautiful state with over 15,000 lakes. But we are humble in Minnesota. We say land of 10,000 lakes. Then uh, the early May, uh, beginning on uh, May 4th, uh, some of the restrictions will be relaxed. Unfortunately, out of those 5,200 positive cases, over 320 have passed away during this time. The losses are huge, not as huge as some more populated areas, big, big cities that we are familiar with. So we are moving toward, moving forward, uh, Minnesotans uh, trying to live a healthier, safer, more, um, uh, if you will, happier life in this difficult time. And we are having a slow spread, slowly building the immunity and elimination is impossible, realizing that it will be with us for a long term. And the focus really is more on public health, on social distancing and on societal well-being as the economy is brought on online slowly. There are gonna be uh, the number of tests are increasing on a, on a daily basis and uh, emotional also aspect, mental aspects and maintaining physical health have been important. So things are moving forward. We started the first day that we had 100 cases of coronavirus identified that day. We were somewhere in the middle of all the states, all the 50 states and uh, areas of our country. Now 
we are, uh, thank goodness, partially because of early closures, we are, we are moved to number two or three lowest number of cases in that graph, positive COVID cases per 100,000 residents, which is normalized. Thank you, Masood. This is Jason. I had a question maybe turning, turning a little bit more to the grid now. So from what you've seen so far, how has the disruption of the pandemic affected the, the grid resiliency? Thank you, Jason. Good to hear your voice. Uh, uh, historically, MISO, Mid-Continent Independent System Operator that runs from Canada to Gulf of Mexico, which is which Minnesota is a part of, and then uh, mostly uh, Excel Energy and some other utilities, Great River Energy and, uh, and uh, a lot of Connexus and others that are under the umbrella of Great River Energy, about 28 ut smaller utilities that serve the state have been doing an amazing job. My hat is off to them. Historically, this spring or fall are called the shoulder season because the load curves are huge in the summer and in the winter, especially winter, because we don't use as much oil as others do. And overall, uh, it has been very reliable. There hasn't been as much impact in the in the uh, MISO region, especially upper MISO, we haven't had the impact of COVID in MISO region was a decrease in the velocity of the morning demand. So in the morning demand ramp, people going to work or schools have prompted many employees to work from home. So the uh, the curve in the morning, that speed of rise of the demand has uh, reduced quite a bit due to COVID. And uh, if you look at the morning demand, um, they have MISO has a has a nice graph on it that uh, they look at the slope and the peak. The peak in terms of the megawatt has been uh, going down steadily, and it's much more. Uh, the peak is is uh, we had it around uh, March 16th or so, due to the weather perhaps. So demand has flattened and has shifted the peak demand hour into early afternoon. Similar, similar also in terms of the market impact. Uh, with COVID pand pandemics, most industry folks are, are very worried that MISO prices will remain low as gas prices and capacity generation also remain unlikely to grow. I think overall, uh, the fact that peak demand is expected to fall at least several gigawatts in many parts of our nation, but in North America, uh, it's uh, it's uh, for the next several quarters due to economic slowdown and changes. Even though folks are going to come back and economy is going to start to grow again, but demand will continue to shift and evolve as human behavior changes in this unprecedented, uncertain era of COVID. The other part that may be of interest to listeners is that IEA has a really good analysis uh, on of what's going on, and Gridwatch Alliance with uh, Ernest and Young have also fantastic reports on it. IEA report uh, is on is on the global reduction, and it seems uh, at least when you you compare the nations, China and India and also United States, we are gonna be hit hard so far in terms of the usage of oil and the oil market 
as well as other sources that we use. Nuclear uh, energy, similarly, there is a concern that fueling cycle for that, to be able to shut them down and fuel them, that may create uh, uncer more uncertainty, if you will, into the mix. And there was another uh, nuclear plant, nuclear refueling outages in the US, mostly affecting, I would say, East Coast, to some degree, uh, uh, you know, Texas and Louisiana. Uh, it is uh, an EIA, Energy Information Administration, has a useful interactive graph about that on the nuclear side of it, an analysis on it. Mostly it's gonna affect the East Coast, South, Southeast, and Wisconsin and Chicago, as well as Ohio, Northern Ohio area, and similar to the other areas you notice. The only other part I would like to add is that uh, DER and distributed energy will be on the rise. And there's a great opportunity, as you may have read about it, as that Spain has reported, for uh, investing in uh, wind and uh, microgrids and distributed energy resources. And Ernst & Young report also focuses on that, that um, this decarbonization is a game changer. And in my humble view, this is the time to actually have uh, a total investment, accelerated investment in aspects of uh, grid that can benefit us now and in the long term. In a sense, the old saying, don't let any <laughs> crises go to waste. Use it in a way that positions of well for the next 20 to 30 years. A little follow up there, maybe if you wanted to expand a little bit on that in, in the context of, of the infrastructure challenges that we're facing from this and, and maybe beyond and how that plays into the context of, of building resilience into the future. Excellent question. Uh, this uh, shown us that local distribution system and demand changes, something that if you look at, uh, you know, to put it in perspective, if you look at the New Year resolutions that, that folks in, in the United States had made according to the CNN poll uh, uh, around uh, November, late November Thanksgiving to mid-December was exercise more, stop smoking, lose weight, those were 10 to 13% eat. Be a better person, eat healthier was 9% each. <laughs> Although we can do all that, who expected such a pandemic to hit us? Well, several people did. Bill Gates was one of them and has written extensively about it. Dr. Michael Sterholm, my friend at Minnesota, has written books about that. And I had the privilege of serving on a panel that he coordinated on pandemics, more than 350 came. So there was a former governor of Minnesota, Governor Arnie Carlson, was on the policy side, I was on the infrastructure side. And at the time, this was before also NERC uh, issuing its orders in 2007 and 8 on flu and, and avian flu and other things, uh, you know, that were hitting us, and then SARS and um, uh, MRSA was my role was infrastructure. And what would happen if 25% of the workforce or more either themselves are disabled or their families are disabled, so they have to take care of them. Number one, so far, 
uh, we have seen many utilities, including uh, national grid, have shown that they have created almost like dormitories in, in facility to take care of the workers and they rotate every few weeks, every six weeks or so. So this area of resilience, part of it is again, uh, taking measures. Uh, it's kind of, you try to separate in any system, complex system or otherwise, separate the parts that are trouble, that are in pain, that are having uh, difficulties and from the healthier part. And you try to bring the parts that are in pain or damaged, injured, back to health as quickly as possible, the healing aspect of it, recovery aspects of it. So I've worked in this area since 1982, since I first year in grad school on a helicopter for Sikorsky and the US Army, how to make systems more resilient. So in a nutshell, about two thirds of people, talking about the human aspects of it, become dysfunctional under stressful conditions, suffering from different forms of health crises while some, some of them cope with it, small percentage of them thrive and become hardy, the hardiness and resilient. Uh, the key is an ingrained hardiness, if you will, that sees a silver lining and optimism in difficult situations. And uh, the pattern of attitudes and skills that helps us, each one of us, to become more resilient by surviving and thriving under stress. University of Minnesota psychology department pioneered area of resilient children. What are the characteristics of children who go through very hard times? And that was done after World War II, back in late 1940s and 50s. What is it that some kids go through a very hard time? Some of them, unfortunately, they never recover. They have a difficult life. Some recover, become resilient, ability to bounce back. It boils down to really three attitudes, three uh, C's, if you will, of commitment, control, and challenge. If one is strong in these three C's, you believe that as times get tough, it, it's best for you to stay involved with the situation evolving around you. In this case, we're distancing from people, but thank goodness we are connected through Zoom, uh, Skype, or through media like this to make sure that we continue our human connection, which is so essential to our, to our life and survival. And uh, by remaining involved, that's the commitment, rather than pull out and avoid people and avoid events. To keep trying to positively influence the outcome that in which we are involved is, called, is the control part, rather than giving, giving up and resigning. And then finally, trying to discover how, how and others around us can grow through that stress, rather than bemoan our fate and become fatalistic, that's a challenge. So those three C's are really the success factors in the, in the courage and motivation to do hard, but important work of using stressful circumstances to our advantage. So that's the human part. And we see that in many of the workers in the utility areas and, and the reports that you're seeing of heroic efforts that they take. So the public good, this public commitment to the greater good are huge parts of that. And if you look at countries that have done well in these crises, and you have read the report on that, has been countries that are led typically by women, 
There are many examples of that. And why is that? I'm not going to go too much into it. My colleagues in the psychology and sociology and uh, related areas have been analyzing that. Basically, as the world becomes more volatile, uncertain, complex, and, and ambiguous, I suspect that this kind of an inner peace, inner working of those cultivating those three C's become more and more important. Uh, somewhat of it, of it nature, some of it is, is nurture, and some of the characteristics can be learned. And the human resilience that has been fascinating or lack thereof, why do we break down? When it comes to the physical infrastructure, uh, of course, these are all coupled. They are all very interdependent. And in the teeth of this pandemic, Spanish utilities and global renewable giants uh, have shown profits accelerating its investments and hiring in uh, exploiting renewables and adding megawatts uh, to their, to their uh, portfolio from January to March, that 26% of the Spanish utilities um, uh, earnings uh, before interest taxes and depreciation uh, was from renewables. And 5.3% of it, uh, profits were up by 5.3% to about nine, to almost a billion euros, about 900, I believe I'm recalling it from memory, 968 or seven, 970 million euros, which is almost $1.2 billion in that first quarter. So there are ways using what we have collectively working on distributed energy resources, microgrid, judiciously, not everywhere, and utilizing energy efficiency, of course, the low-hanging fruit, and, um, and, uh, and the judicious integration of renewables and electric vehicles, and the nexus of energy and water, including electricity, which is on the rise, to help with that. Otherwise, the death spiral that you have seen that, uh, that various organizations, Edison Electricity Institute and others have predicted is gonna catch up with us. And time will not be on our side. Time will be on the side of those who adapt and change and uh, use the situation for level-headed investments in areas that they may have not considered in the past or may have waited for others to do. So this changes in redesigning the distribution system from the bottom up and the IT overlay, sensor overlay over it that we're gonna talk about later, cyber security, physical security and others are a must. Um, Masood, I, I wanna go back to sort of what you were talking about in terms of the, in terms of well, I, I guess what you did, did well there was kind of put all, all these issues into a greater context, a context of, of the time and kind of this global context and what the global efforts are. Um, so do you think that the aftermath of the pandemic we're in is going to change this ecosystem as we start to question how open and interconnected we are, not just as a business, but as a, you know, as a global society? Excellent question. Thank you, Dylan. Uh, you know, the, because of uh, because of the uh, some policies in many nations who have elected uh, countries that are elected leaders that are more isolationist, uh, it has it has actually shown that by isolation, uh, long term, 
we cannot survive because our supply chains are global, our economies are interconnected, our intelligence and, and human capability is interconnected. So there is a balance between all of them. And the pace of technological change has been breathtaking, perhaps especially more so in the coming uh, few years due to AI and machine intelligence, the things that we were working on since even before I was in school, since, <laughs> since before I was born in the 1940s and 50s. And I use parts of this in my work, other colleagues who did schooling in the 80s and early 90s. But the things we were dreaming of were not possible back then. Now, because of computational power that we have, uh, has been made possible. If we look back, I had privilege of interviewing uh, Mr. David Wagman about three areas of it in August of September of last year for Engineering 360, which is an IEEE um, uh, organization. And the questions that we were looking at is where have we come from the last 100 years, the last 200 years, uh, and then where are we headed? That was before coronavirus, before all these pandemics. But if we look at growth of uh, civilization, just focusing in the last 120 years, uh, we have had a period of technology breakthroughs and triumphs. What uh, the Austrian economist, Peter Schumpeter, used to call uh, the constructive, destructive construction, that electrification, telecommunication, and internet have overcome the tyranny of uh, darkness and distance. Similarly, fast and efficient transportation, modern medicine, even though we are dealing with more and more challenges as we go forward. So when we look at just these three areas, fast and efficient transformation, transportation, telecom and internet and electrification, modern medicine, these are all interconnected, at least continentally and the rest of them globally. Uh, when we look at the other areas, scientific agriculture and uh, other advancements that have changed the conditions of human life across the globe and in the United States, the benefits of it have been huge. We have had in, in about 120 years, the average lifespan has nearly doubled. And many new opportunities are provided during that longer lifespan to each person, better quality of life. And when we look at this, science and engineering and its impact in societies around the world have been immense. As I've traveled, as I've done case studies from countries from China, India, Singapore, South Korea, Vietnam, Egypt, and European nations and others, it has become obvious, not just my work, but so many other amazing people, that the three fundamental questions that we address are all enabled by these scientific discoveries and engineering know-how and building capabilities. So it, uh, engineering, in a sense, uh, is a global phenomenon. And the three fundamental questions that are essential for us as we look at how to globalize in a responsible way, in a way that doesn't have backlash and is appropriate, doesn't end up in exploitation uh, or human rights abuse, or we can guard against spread of viruses, pandemics, including cyber attacks, by the way, Three questions are, can a booming economy that is networked globally 
be sustained without, without human rights, intellectual property rights, and free speech? Is that possible? Number two, what countermeasures do we have to quickly identify, quickly prevent, localize, and heal disturbances, whether they are pandemics, whether they're cyber attacks, whether they're other destabilizers or multi-pronged attacks on the system? And will the citizens in those places be able to pay attention to such precursors, or are we gonna wait for a, for a catastrophe to have new heroes to come to the rescue, or can we be proactive about it? I call that proactive resilience. And it's always like an insurance policy. And it's hard for quote-unquote leaders to sell it to the public to take preactive action. For Y2K, for colleagues who are listening, we didn't see huge impact because for three, four years, major industry effort globally, partnership was done to minimize the risk of a blackout. But no, but nobody at the time got, uh, if you will, <laughs> medals and kudos and anything, and it went unnoticed. We only notice things when emergencies become tragedies. And then uh, a few people, like we talked in the beginning, have the resilience uh, to rise to the challenge and save the rest of the, the rest of the community. Unfortunately, sometimes that is too late and the cost to human life, cost to our civilization, cost to our economy, to our civil liberties are too huge. So then, then the last question is studying all these phenomena, especially in this era, post the industrial revolution, post industrial era, and uh, such can such quality of life, higher quality of life for all be achieved more rapidly and ethically? The short answer is yes to all of the above, because uh, we have seen uh, short-term, mid-term, and long-term strategies and processes adopted within each economy to achieve their goals. The question is, how do we network? How do we build connections like you are doing at Z Prime and in this program? Uh, so we move toward that greater good and the vision, which is not uh, privileging a few and ignoring the rest. You touched on this briefly, but uh, there's a there is definitely a uh, cyber component to to resiliency, uh, one of the key things we've been talking about. Uh, what are some of the unique issues that are, that have come to light recently in this in this space? Excellent question. Uh, thank you very much, Dylan. You know, I have worked on countering multi-pronged evolving systemic threats to critical infrastructure since 19, beginning of 98, for about 22 years, and before that, for Department of Defense, Air Force, Air Mobility Command, and US Transportation Command on supply chains and aircraft and other logistics elements for pickup and delivery of uh, patients and personnel and families of veterans and veterans. So then I look at this in a holistic way as a system, as a complex system, of what cyber cyber security means. Cyber security is a huge part of the more we get interconnected. We have so many benefits, but it comes with risks if we don't protect it. And, and as you know, before and after 9-11, especially after 9-11, when I became responsible for all the rich and development for infrastructure security at EPRI and about 97% of our utilities in North America, 
We reached out to utilities and their vendors uh, to share relevant information and develop action plans. We had we conducted red team studies really fast under the gun before the end of October of 2001, uh, and uh, simulated multi-pronged cyber physical attacks, even biological warfare, without going into sensitive details, on a variety of grid assets and developed protocols uh, for system security and resiliency. And in doing so, we learned a lot of lessons that uh, whether it is biological warfare, pandemic, cyber communication control layers, uh, new families of security threats that have surfaced, if we can detect them early on and we can quarantine, we can self-isolate them and reduce the probability or the likelihood of that attack becoming a regional or a systemic, if you will, uh, threat, we can manage it. And the question is preventing it or disrupting it or managing, managing it, ameliorating the effects and healing and bringing it back to life. Uh, there is also, if you look at it, disaster mitigation effect, uh, uh, efforts that have to do with distribution vulnerability assessment uh, that were part of what we have done in the last 20 years or so. And uh, in a multi-layered system, especially from whether it's gas, whether it is nuclear fuel cycle, whether it's uh, supply chain, or whether it's attack on the utility, what kind of sensors to use to, to detect dangerous agents and have layers of protection or what is called in Department of Defense, countermeasures that are defense in depth the addition of a treatment um, facility uh, and to deactivate the agents within the elements that are attacking. And then threats to energy markets, to utility markets that uh, can the system be gained? Can you create overloads intentionally to areas that are already vulnerable during such a time that, that either a hot summer day or cold winter day or due to pandemics. In this case, uh, we, we have seen, and I'm writing a book on that, a draft chapter, which is actually on the same area, and I'm, uh, I have factored out or not kept any of the classified information. From all these different things we have learned, with any destabilizing systemic, systemic threat, including multi-pronged coordinated attacks, or natural disasters, we can often prevent, delay, interrupt, or limit localized impacts and slow the spread of destabilizers, be it a virus, be it, be it a, pardon me, electromagnetic bomb threat or bomb deployment or a virus, and recover and solve it. Only if we and our governments and all stakeholders act collectively not too agitated or worried like a nervous wreck all the time, but with the three C's, the resilience we talked about, with the true data-driven early intelligence leadership, based on early actionable validated intelligence proactively and aggressively. However, many of us often ignore indicators to any part of the system of major threats routinely think, think tactically because most of it is pro profit driven of this quarter's earnings or so on. 
with a short attention span. Also, we have really harvested a lot out of our infrastructure. We have not invested as much into infrastructure. It's almost, I mean, Minnesota is almost like you're over harvesting the farm. Sooner or later, your seed is gonna run out and you're gonna be vulnerable to disruptions, even more vulnerable. And often we do, we take actions or we make decisions with insufficient data from a societal point of view and especially policy point of view. And very little room for proactive, as we talked about earlier, strategic risk management, risk avoidance. And what in the past I've noticed is that while limiting panics, as which part, partially is the role of mayors, police, first responders, and policymakers going to the governors and the president's office, limiting panics and coping are essential in the short term. However, coping as a primary strategy, waiting for destabilizers to happen and then use that to get pop more popular by taking, by pretending you're taking action is not a, a sustainable uh, or wise or prudent idea. It's a defeatist strategy. Ultimately, lack of investment in, in infrastructure, in the people, and in the overall uh, resilience of the system is not going to serve us well. More broadly here is, from what you see, Masood, in terms of, do you see utility, the utility infrastructure sector from this kind of coming to some type of realization that there needs to, and I think you just touched on it, there needs to be a prioritization in terms of how this is built into utility roadmaps and utility planning in the future. Uh, do you see that as, as coming coming to light and and, and how, how do we make sure to advise them that we have to do this now we can't it can't just be the um, the shiny the shiny stuff that gets good attention that we need to do the work. Do you see them moving forward with that? Jason, great question. Many utilities, thank goodness, have sort of some sort of resiliency uh, as part of their uh, disaster recovery or some form of smart grid. And part of smart grid is to build uh, security within the devices, within the communication protocols, and within the self-healing capability, restoration capability. Yes, I think uh, utilities. This is this is the time to look into an energy transition that's gonna be profitable now, like we talked about going on in Spain and there are other case studies that are emerging more and more, uh, and develop capabilities to understand and address such interdependent complex systems that we are operating. As these systems work and, and interact with each other, the secondary tertiary effects that many of the utility strategies that are very intelligent, but they are not really uh, thinking in systems way, many of them need to be forward thinking, being strategic, know the past, but be open to innovation. And this rapid innovation fund have a, a percentage of their, their revenues in times of crisis even more so use that as a bifurcation point to develop a fresh outlook that can realistically be achieved. What are the resultant if they do that? And if they don't do it, what are the resultant primary, secondary, tertiary consequences? There was a miracle, uh, there was an oracle of Baltimore, H.L. Menken, 
who said, I think, for every complex problem, there is a single solution that is simple, neat, and wrong. Unfortunately, <laughs> often we take that approach. We approach complex problems with a single solution that's really simple, often neat, and often inexpensive, and it's wrong, or sometimes it's expensive. So developing capabilities to really do this. I wrote about it beginning actually in 97, 98, and, and I wrote about it about about the Midwest uh, reliability and national uh, national reliability of the grid. I, that article is called We Are Not In Kansas Anymore. I believe mm -hmm. it appeared in September, October of 2011 edition of Midwest Reliability Organization, which is part of MISO. I'm mean, sorry, has oversight over MISO, uh, delegated authority from NERC and FERC, one of the eight regional entities. And then these uh, persisting security concerns, resiliency concerns that we have, cyber, physical pandemics. Your question is very nicely stated uh, that we have, as you know, we have an outdated regulatory model. And an important part of, of that is that constraints on the regulatory oversight of security protection is split over the grid. Part of it is within the local jurisdiction, part of it is bulk power system under federal regulation. And uh, th these inconsistent roles and authorities uh, needs to be ironed out. And some of it uh, we did uh, we did as part of a IEEE quadratic energy review report back in uh, 2014 for the President's Office and DOE at the privilege of writing actually the one of the six chapters exactly on this area, on the aging, infrastructure, security, resiliency, reliability, what can we do? And there are recommendations in that. There are always also a FERC order on small generator interconnection procedures, SGIP, would help on the, uh, having bringing this, this vision in this vision of more modernized, smarter, more resilient, more secure, uh, grid and distribution system that would be profitable and sustainable. And um, in doing that, protection of control and communication system becomes essential, even more so as we digitize. And investments in security, uh, it's a business case for security investment and upgrades. Those are still challenges that utilities can and must address and we can do that. We have shown it in different areas of the country, different areas of the world. And then um, security versus efficiency uh, and return on investment is part of that business case. And then the last one that we have talked about that privilege of presenting at Energy Thought Summit several times is centralization versus decentralization, uh, both of the control and of the architecture of the system. And uh, from microgrids to uh, approaching modernization of the grid and limitations of cost of service regulation and having alternative regulatory models that each state could consider adopting are areas that need to be worked out. But the, the, the quick answer is we can, we have done it, we can do it, and we can make this actually uh, this part of resiliency and security and modernization, including a holistic approach, systems approach 
that is <laughs> that is actually and may not seem simple, but it becomes simple, and it's not going to be uh, just a short-term approach. It's more strategic, and would make it work. So supporting, looking into holistic, integrated approaches in managing the current fleet of assets to best achieve optimal um, or near optimal cost-effective solutions while addressing aging infrastructure hardening, including pandemic, weather-related, physical cybersecurity, and system reliability and resiliency are part of that. Thank you for laying that out so, so clearly, and I think this could be very beneficial to the audience. So kind of end on, on a note on, on what's your guidance what are you doing to uh, to quiet the mind, to help find peace, especially when we can't be outdoors and doing some of the other things? So what are you doing to to find that that peacefulness? I know you're a big fan of of meditation and things. So what are you doing there? At the risk of TMI, um, I have stuttered since I was four years old. And it was because I was putting my stress in my vocal cords. As you know, John Wayne, Marilyn Monroe, uh, and Vice President Joe Biden and others stutter. The, those of us who are born speaking even early, talking in sentences and paragraphs, not, not <laughs> child talk, and then something tragic happens and our body's response is to tense up that part of the body. In some people, in about 2 million people in the US, it happens to be their vocal cords. So by the time I was eight, I wanted, I'd seen Bruce Lee's movies, and I went to my parents, and, I, and I'm the youngest of four kids, and I have amazing brothers and a sister. So I went to them and said, may I please do martial arts? They say, why, Masood, you're a calm, happy kid. Why martial I said, I want to be like Bruce Lee. They told me, who is Bruce Lee? <laughs> so anyway, I had, to, I had to save the money to pay for at least three months of that. And they told me, these are rough sports. You should cultivate tennis and polo and volleyball and swimming and all that. And I said, yes, I do those. I play soccer, basketball, and I want to do martial arts. Anyway, through martial arts, without even knowing it, I was exposed to meditation, quieting the mind, breathing, focusing on the breath. You don't really empty your mind. When you hear empty the mind, the mind is always going. It's our three layers in our brain, as you know, the reptilian brain, which is responsible for our fight, fly, or freeze responses. That is our survival. Then the next layer of the brain is the mammalian brain. The limbic brain also smells the five uh, senses we have, as well as what clan, what tribe do we belong to, sense of affinity, when a cat or a dog or a horse comes and kisses you and recognizes you, that's part of that. And then neocortex, which is the spot brain, analytical thinking, long-term planning, strategic thinking, mathematical approach, that's the part which is the neocortex of the brain. That often, the combination of the reptilian brain that causes the survival mechanism, PTSD and others, is one part of it. The other part is when you're exposed to that for a long time, to exposed to stressors, it's natural body response, natural emotional response to be stressed. The question is, what do we do? How do we channel that stress? And it goes back to the beginning of our talk, is resilience. Do we use it as a stimulus for bettering, if you, I shouldn't use the word bettering, for uh, moving to our higher 
itself or panicking and being defeated by it and torturing ourselves. That's one part. The other part is the overthinking things, overanalyzing. So what I did through martial arts beginning early, and even now that I'm 49 years older, I still do the same. Find time to breathe, deep breath, and put your hand on your stomach. Inhale as you're expanding it. Exhale as you're pushing your hand in. And do it to a count of five or seven. And as the thoughts come to your mind, imagine them as dead wood on the river passing you by. Or tell them, I've seen you before. I'm going to see you again. This is, not, this is my time. Or some people do visualization. They visualize a ball of light, ball of energy. There are different methods to do meditation, but for me, all of the above works. Anything, especially a deep breath. So the, over the years, my stuttering has gone down, and I, I never had, unfortunately, I never had any coaching or any treatment for it. It was just by brute force. By the time I was 16, I guess a combination of martial arts and meditation and having great family and friends around me who encouraged me, who supported me, having a community that is around you, that's kind to you, that's genuinely um, loving and supporting, and that sense of quiet peace within you. Now I talk in nonstop, as you notice, nonstop paragraphs. So, so I would recommend looking at what gives you peace, something which is positive, something which is happy, and optimism, and hopeful, uh, being hopeful and optimistic, and looking and building bridges toward those uh, happier, better, realistic, um, achievable, sometimes stretch, but achievable goals in this complex world is essential. And you know, if you look at what people were saying at the turn of the 19th century, the 20th, uh, the fears they had, the worries they had, they had at the time, is very similar to the fears and worries we're facing now. 1918 pandemic that destroyed, I mean, huge parts of uh, economy, life, and everything else at the end of World War I, basically. Then World War II, then all the tragedies, all the pains and trials and tribulations that our nation has gone through, or our world, a human nation, uh, and the natural world has gone through. I think I wrote a piece, uh, and I was reading other people have written similar things about that, about the about the, what this, it humbles us when we deal with it. Uh, suddenly we, <laughs> we wake up and the human condition has changed, uh, a combination of fear, hope, and resilience. And we went to sleep in one kind of a world and we woke up in another. And then uh, I guess at some level, it, uh, we survive by, by kind of um, connecting with each other and uh, the saviors of humanity appear as scientists and engineers uh, who have paved the world for healing. But then it boils down to our individual, uh, individual peace and peace within and actions we take from that place of peace and hope that changes the lives for us and people around us and hopefully the greater good in the society. Well, thank you for that, Masood. That's definitely uh, food for thought. Um... <clears throat> Yeah, and we're all, I, 
I think it's a, a good message in a time when we're all just trying to figure out how to keep our heads on straight. I want to thank you for for that insight and for uh, everything else you've shared with us today. It's been very. It's My been, pleasure. Uh, yeah, it's been yeah a, thank you so much, Doctor Amin. It was, it was wonderful, wonderful to spend you. time with you again. Thank you. Thank you both of you, and thank you both for everything you are doing as part of Z Prime efforts, multi pronged efforts to help our uh, our overall not just one industry, not just energy but the broader human community in a responsible, ethical, sustainable way. And there my hat is off to you that you're doing exactly what is needed, the kinds of broadcasts, interviews, videocasts, podcasts that you have. And I'm very grateful at any time if I can be of service to your efforts. Thank you uh, so much. Thank you very much. Um, for, and for the rest of you, you can find our research and media at zprime.com. Uh, you can find us on social media at DIY Lockwood, at Aaron Hardick, at Jason S. Rodriguez, and at Z Prime underscore research. My name is Dylan, and we'll see you all next time.